This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Navigating Life Through Prayer. In the first half, Chris Crow shares his address, The Undiscovered Country, Navigating Toward the Future. Then in the second half, Cheryl C. Lance speaks on prayer. I've been thinking about you uh, and this talk for several weeks since I received the assignment, and this is what I've come up with. In perhaps the most famous soliloquy in one of Shakespeare's most famous plays, the brooding character Hamlet reflects on choice, life, and uncertainty. Even if you've not read or seen the play, you'll certainly recognize the opening line of Hamlet's speech, to be or not to be, that is the question. But unless you're a Star Trek fan, you may have forgotten that later in that same soliloquy, Hamlet refers to death as the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. Today I'd like to talk about a different undiscovered country, not death, but the future, the months and years, the life you've got ahead of you. And as someone well advanced in years, I feel qualified to talk about the future because I've been there, sort of, and I'm here today to tell you what I've learned about the securitist path that led to my future, which is now my present. If you're anything like I was as a student, the short and long-term future often weighs heavily on your mind. And to one degree or another, all of these future events and experiences are as yet undiscovered country for you, even if you're a meticulous and experienced planner. You may think you know exactly where you're headed, exactly how you'll get there, and exactly what it will be like when you get there, but I'm here to tell you that in the long run, you've got a lot to learn. Some of the anxiety related to our undiscovered country comes from unrealistic expectations, from living in an achievement culture, and maybe even from a dose of perfectionism. A couple weeks ago, Lindsay Levitt Brown, an author friend of mine, was speaking to one of my classes. She shared with my students her path to publication, including displaying the books and poetry she had written as an elementary student and the scores of rejections she received when she started her writing career. As a young girl, she knew she wanted to be a writer, but she didn't know and hadn't learned exactly how to make that happen. And that lack of knowledge, the uncertainty about who she was and what she wanted to be, caused a considerable amount of stress and discouragement because she said, I thought you had to have that all worked out by the time you were nine. Well, she now knows she was wrong. Of course, at nine, most of us do have some idea of what we want to be and do when we grow up. But that dream often changes as we get older because we change as we get older and our circumstances change as we get older and our opportunities and abilities change. It's wonderful and wise and absolutely essential to have dreams and goals, but it's also wonderful and wise to be flexible enough to allow yourself to adapt to the situations you encounter as you progress through life. Some of those changes occur naturally. Some are a result of our own efforts and strategic planning, and some arrive unbidden and totally without warning. But I can guarantee you that change will come whether you want it or not. And I can tell you that the only way to endure well the inevitable curveballs life will throw at you is to be firmly rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of course, personal, academic, and professional preparation will be invaluable as you chart your way through undiscovered country. 
But the light of the gospel and the guidance of the Holy Ghost are the constants you can rely on to help you make the right decisions when you reach life's inevitable crossroads. That spiritual guidance is the only sure way to know whether to stop and camp a while or to forge ahead on the path to the left or to the right. Let me illustrate and witness to the truthfulness of what I just said with some personal examples. I was in eighth grade when I first heard the word Mormon. I'm pretty sure I wasn't aware of any of my classmates at McCamey Junior High in Tempe, Arizona, who were actual members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But I was aware, dimly, that such a religion existed and that it was radically different from the Roman Catholic religion I'd been raised in. When I started ninth grade at McClintock High School the following year, I met my first Mormon, a football teammate who talked long and often about his church and its various and what seemed to me exhausting activities. But aside from being a member of a strange religion, Walt Denham was normal in most other respects, and he was a great friend. And as a Mormon insider, he pointed out that our school was swarming with other kids from his church. And most of those kids seemed all right, or even better than all right. In my junior year, one of those kids, Elizabeth Foley, invited me to the annual Sadie Hawkins dance. And I was thrilled to discover that such a gorgeous young woman knew who I was, and even more thrilled to get to go on a date with her. That first date eventually led to another, which led to another, and pretty soon we were dating regularly. Like Walt, Elizabeth was furiously active in her religion and constantly trying to drag me to seminary or firesides or mutual or sacrament meeting or anything else churchy she was involved in. And I have to admit that my interest in those activities was inversely proportional to my interest in Elizabeth. <laughs> I absolutely loved being around her just as much as I absolutely loathed the idea of going to some activity at her strange church. As her relationship matured, she talked more and more about her religion and about how someday she planned to get married in a temple. I told her that as far as I was concerned, one church building was as good as another. And she explained, or tried to explain, that it was a little more complicated than that. We kept dating. She kept pitching Mormon activities to me, and I kept resisting. Not long into our senior year, she broke up with me because she didn't want to risk falling in love with someone she couldn't marry in the temple. Her parting gift was a grim-looking black paperback called A Marvelous Work and a Wonder. I tossed the book into my locker and tried to forget about it. In an odd twist of fate, around the time Elizabeth and I broke up, BYU started recruiting me to play football here. My dad absolutely hated the thought of my going to BYU. He was sure they would brainwash me into joining their church, and he pushed me to accept instead the scholarship offer from the University of Arizona. After visiting both schools and meeting BYU's brand-new head coach, a guy named Lavelle Edwards, I decided to sign with BYU for two reasons. Provo was a refreshing contrast from the Arizona desert I'd been living in. And at the time, BYU has a weak football team that I thought I had a pretty good chance to see a lot of playing time. And it turned out that I was right about that, not just in the way I expected. In my four years on a team, I did see lots of playing time. Unfortunately, most of it was from the sidelines. In the end, though, neither religion nor Elizabeth had anything to do with my decision to attend BYU. It just seemed to make good football sense. So a few months passed, and as my high school career drew to a close, I started wondering 
why her religion was such a big deal to Elizabeth and why she was so deeply committed to it. That's when I remembered that marvelous something book, and I thought it might help me understand what she hadn't been able to get me to understand. I took it home and skimmed it. Most of the text was way beyond my understanding. But when I went back through it, looking for answers, I came upon a passage in chapter 2, written by a boy who related an incredible experience he had had in 1820. When I finished that passage, I knew that this boy, whoever he was, had honestly related a real experience. He really had gone into the forest to pray, and he really had seen God the Father and Jesus Christ. His story was true. Well, that led to a whirlwind of events, talking to missionaries, going to church, talking with Elizabeth about the church's doctrine. That plays me at a crucial crossroad. Knowing what I knew, should I join this church? The missionaries had their own ideas, of course, but I didn't know if I had the courage to take that leap of faith, especially because I knew that at the time my father would consider it a departure not just from the Catholic Church, but also from my family. So I prayed, and I fasted for the first time, and I had my own wrestle with the Spirit, trying to distill God's will from my own thoughts and desires. And I can tell you that it was the hardest thing I had ever done. I didn't have a vision or a burning in my bosom or any obvious manifestation that would have made the decision easy. But I did, finally, feel the answer, and it wasn't the answer I wanted. I ended up missing my first two baptism appointments. And I can only imagine what the poor missionaries were thinking. But my work schedule finally allowed me to show up at the Tempe Stake Center on July 2nd, this very day in 1972, to be baptized a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It would be a monumental understatement to say that that decision altered the path of my life. And it's impossible to understate the role prayer and the Holy Ghost played in making that decision. Though I didn't realize it at the time, I have learned in the decades since that when I have taken the time to ponder and pray about some of life's most important decisions, I've been blessed to know which path to take. And it's probably no surprise to you to hear that the right path isn't always the easiest. So I came to Provo in late July in time for two-day football practices and to settle into my dorm and gear up for my first semester of college a semester where I would earn a C- in freshman English. I can't blame my lousy grades that semester on football or on homesickness, but I think part of my problem was heartsickness. Elizabeth had stayed in Arizona to attend school, and the longer I was away from her, the more I missed her, and I had a pretty good idea how to solve that problem. I proposed. She said yes. We got married just in time to move into Wymount Terrace for my sophomore year. Not surprisingly, my academic record improved almost immediately. (laughs) And thanks to Elizabeth, I stopped taking classes just because they sounded interesting and instead took classes that would actually lead to graduation. (laughs) When BYU handed me my diploma in December 1976, they also handed us an eviction notice. I finished my last final exam just before Christmas break, and we still didn't know where we'd be living when we had to move out of Wymount a week or so later. I have to tell you, that caused us considerable stress. College life hadn't been exactly stress-free. The rigors of football and an English major, and yes, I'm well aware of the irony of my majoring in English after my lowly C-minus start, took a lot out of me, and calling our budget shoestring would be a gross exaggeration. 
But the challenging nature of my last three years at BYU is nothing compared to facing an unknown, uncertain, terrifyingly blank future, a daunted, undiscovered country. In those gut-wrenching days when I was searching madly for a job, I was also contemplating my situation, and that's when I realized that for me my college experience had been something like tubing down the Salt River in Arizona. There had been bumps and twists and some white water along the way, but there was also the security of solid land to my left and to my right, and the promise that if I stayed in the river long enough, it would deliver me to the exit point where I could get out safely. The problem I was facing in December 1976 was that my final destination wasn't a crystal pond somewhere. It was a figurative ocean, vast, deep, and endless. And in those dark, terrifying days of drifting into the great unknown, we spent a lot of time praying and making contingency plans and searching for cheap apartments that might take us with a pittance for a deposit and no advance notice. And we also took comfort in the scriptures, especially these two, Matthew chapter 6, verse 8, Your Father knoweth what things ye have need of. And 1 Nephi chapter 9, verse 6, But the Lord knoweth all things from the beginning, wherefore he prepareth a way to accomplish all his works among the children of men. And did I say we prayed day and night for a miracle? A miracle came. A high school up in Ogden had a sudden opening for an English teacher, especially a teacher who might want to coach a little. I grabbed the contract before they could change their minds, and we moved to Ogden, where we bought a tiny old house on 29th Street, just below Harrison Boulevard, and settled in to start our grown-up lives. We fully expected to live there for decades. We lasted just six months. Though I loved my colleagues and my students at Weber High, when a vacancy at my high school alma mater opened up in Arizona in March, I had to apply. They offered me a job at the end of the school year, So that July, we packed up our meager belongings, sold our little old house, and moved to Arizona. We bought a brand new house, got involved in the ward, started having kids, and figured that, without a doubt, we would finish out our lives in Arizona. We lasted 10 years. In those 10 years, while teaching high school full-time, I went to graduate school part-time at Arizona State University primarily to make myself a better high school English teacher, but also to take advantage of the salary incentives that came with graduate degrees. And while in graduate school, I also started writing magazine articles, scholarly articles, professional journals, fiction, and even a little poetry. I don't have time to go into all the details, but after a decade of teaching high school English, I wondered what it might be like to be a college teacher, to have a job that gave me more time to write. I applied for a few jobs, heard nothing, and felt lucky that I had a job I loved at a school I loved. But then came an offer from a university in Japan, a lifetime appointment even. Initially I was flattered, but the idea of taking my wife and four little children halfway around the world to a foreign country where none of us would be able to read, write, or speak the local language took more courage than I had. I was ready to say thanks, but no thanks. But knowing how interested I was in teaching at the college level, Elizabeth suggested we should study it out and then pray about it. So we made pro-con lists, talked with family and friends and our bishop, learned what we could about Japan and Japanese culture. And after all that, the answer was pretty clear. No. Nope. No way. A bird in the hand. The devil you know. All that. But Elizabeth pointed out we hadn't prayed yet. So we prayed, taking turns, talking, then praying some more. 
The wall of fear I had of moving to Japan effectively blocked the still small voice. So after days of prayer and conversation, we were still mired in a stupor of thought. And that's when Elizabeth suggested that we pray harder and more humbly. And that's when the answer I didn't want to hear arrived. Go. We went. And it was hard. Stimulating, soul-stretching, life-enriching, hard. We lasted three years. After about two years, we started having feelings that maybe Japan wasn't the end for us. So I started applying for jobs in the United States, and I quickly learned in the days before email and Skype, no one wanted to interview some guy in Japan. So we dug in, assuming the Lord must want us to stay in Japan for reasons beyond our own understanding. But early one morning in our third year there, our phone rang. It was Lanny Britch, the academic vice president at BYU-Hawaii. A member of their English department had just left unexpectedly. Would I be interested in replacing him? Not a lot of prayer necessary to confirm that decision. (laughs) So we moved to the fabulous north shore of Oahu and fell in love with Hawaii, the university and its wonderful students from all over the world. We bought a house. We bought grave sites. We knew beyond a doubt that we had finally reached our last stop. It would take a tsunami or some other act of God to pry us from our bright little island in the Pacific. We lasted four years. At the beginning of my fourth year in paradise, I received a letter from Greg Clark, a member of the English department at BYU-Provo. There was an opening in their department for someone with my qualifications. Would I be interested in applying? Easy answer, no. But Elizabeth and I felt that we should talk it over, so we did, with extreme bias. Neither one of us wanted to leave Laie. Neither one of us wanted to give up the sun-drenched beach for snow-capped mountains. But we studied it out in our minds, made our pro-con list, talked to friends who worked in Provo, and made our decision. No. Of course, we still had one step left to complete. We had to pray about it. We had to seek the Spirit and then be sensitive enough to discern our Heavenly Father's will through the shouted objections of our own will. And it was tough. That old stupor of thought settled in every time we prayed for confirmation. And every morning when we walked the beach at sunrise, that stupory fog got even thicker. But we kept at it until we finally had an answer. And I guess you know what that answer was. It's now obvious from my current perspective how each of the decisions Elizabeth and I have made in the last few decades led us to where we currently are. From where we stand now, the destination was inevitable. But on the front end, when we were just getting started, we faced the great void of undiscovered country with little or no idea of what would come next. In that respect, life follows one of the key principles of fiction writing, the notion called the inevitability of retrospect. Those of us who like stories, reading or watching them, would admit that suspense, the question of what will happen next, is usually what keeps us engaged. We want to follow the plot filled with wonder and speculation And we hope to be surprised by how things ultimately turn out. In the writing of fiction, being predictable is one of the worst sins a writer can commit. Author and editor Rust Hills used this diagram to show what he meant by the inevitability retrospect. And he defined it by saying, When you begin a story, and while you're reading it, alternatives to the character's fate and to the plot's action seem open, possible, available. But when you finish the story and look back, the action should seem Inevitable. 
When it comes to real life, though, most of us feel exactly the opposite about knowing how things will turn out in the future. We crave predictability. Not only do we want to know where we're headed, but we really want to know when and how we'll get there. In my experience, most of the stress of my life related to my career had to do with facing the unknown, my own undiscovered country. One of the stressors related to graduating from college is the looming unknown. College life has plenty of uncertainties, but one thing is always certain. Next semester, you'll have a schedule of classes and a routine that will be familiar with you. When you're through with college, that scheduled certainty evaporates, and you're dumped from a cozy river into the ocean of life with a distant and seemingly endless horizon. Facing that transition from a stable student life to the broad vicissitudes of adult life can be terrifying. So, how can you navigate or prepare to navigate this ocean of life, this undiscovered country you'll enter when you leave BYU? At our stage of life, Elizabeth and I can take a retrospective look at our careers and see the inevitable steps that led us to where we now live. We took those steps with faith, like Nephi, not knowing beforehand the things which we should do. We learned that our Heavenly Father loves us and that He has a plan for us, and that if we take the time to ponder and pray, we can learn His will for us. We learned that such pondering and praying isn't easy, and it isn't always fun, but it has always blessed us, especially when life smacked us with hard, sometimes heartbreaking experiences. We learned the paths of life are filled with wonderful, loving people who are willing to help us along the way. We learned to follow Nephi's advice. Wherefore, ye must press forward with a steadfastness in Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope. And we learned that more often than we'd like, we have to be patient and long-suffering. As Alter Holland said, some blessings come soon, some come late, and some don't come until heaven. But for those who embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, they come. Most of all, though, we learned that when we've centered our lives on Jesus Christ and tried to live by His teachings, we've always been able to find our way, the right way, to the next steps in our lives. Life has taught Elizabeth and me that Heavenly Father has a plan for us, and I know that He also has a plan for each of you. I know that if you'll ponder, pray, and listen, He will lead you to where He wants you to be. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Navigating Life Through Prayer. We've just heard from Chris Crow. After the break, we'll return with Cheryl C. Lant for prayer. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Navigating Life Through Prayer. Next is Cheryl C. Lant, Primary General President of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at the time of this address, titled Prayer. I would like to begin our discussion this evening by reviewing a story that we are all very familiar with. It is about a young man who lived in a large city. In many ways, it was like the cities we live in today. 
It was crowded, noisy, filled with people going about their daily activities of work and play, people who were frustrated and stressed at trying to keep up with the life around them. It was a city filled with temptation. There were many voices crying for his attention, voices that invited him to indulge in selfish desires for things, power, fame, and pleasure. Voices that encouraged him to cheat a little here and lie a little there. Voices that taunted him to join in because everyone was doing it. This young man had many choices to make. He had a family, a family that was probably a lot like many of our families. It was a family that had both strengths and weaknesses. His parents were good people who took seriously their responsibility to teach their children correct principles and desired that their children would follow the Lord. They were parents who probably made mistakes now and then in their attempts to accomplish this. The father was a priesthood leader. He was diligent in fulfilling his responsibilities to his family and to the Church. Some of the children of the family were respectful and obedient. Others wanted to follow their own will, just like in our families. Now, this young man was like you young people who are here tonight. He was bright, serious-minded, respectful, diligent, and obedient. He loved his parents and family, and he loved the Lord. He wanted to make the right choices. Like most of you, he listened to his father and was respectful and obedient. But it was hard, and as time went on, it became harder and harder. The words of his father separated him from his friends and from the world around him. He wanted and needed to know for himself if the things that his father taught him were true. We read in the scriptures how he did that and what happened. Having a great desire to know of the mysteries of God, therefore I did cry unto the Lord, and behold, he did visit me, and did soften my heart, that I did believe all the words which had been spoken by my Father. Faced with life-altering decisions in his life, this young man turned in humility to his Heavenly Father in prayer, and he received an answer to his prayer. This young man's name was Nephi. Nephi had a choice to make in his life. It was very much like the choices we all have to make in our lives every day. Now, Even though our world may look very different from his, the influences that were pulling on him were very much like the influences that pull on us. He had to make a choice between the things of the world and the things of the Lord. We have these same choices. Nephi chose to put his mind and will into the hands of the Lord. He chose to go to the only true source of truth and righteousness in prayer. He chose to listen to the answers the Lord gave him, and he chose to obey. This simple act of prayer not only opened the door to a great life of opportunity and blessings for Nephi, but it also serves as an example to us in our lives today. Nephi himself taught in 1 Nephi 19 and 23, 
that we should liken the scriptures unto us, that it might be for our profit and learning. And so tonight we are going to talk about the great principle of the gospel that was demonstrated by Nephi. We are going to talk about prayer. We are going to look to the scriptures and to the prophets for understanding. And we are going to liken these teachings to our own lives. As we do so, will you think about prayer in your life and honestly and seriously think about the answer to some questions I am going to ask? Such questions as, What should I be praying about in my life? When and how can I pray? When I pray, do I pray with intensity and faith? Do I feel that my prayers are heard? Do I really believe that the Lord will answer me? Do I understand how the answers to prayers come? Do I recognize and accept the answers, even if they are not what I want them to be? Do I understand what it means to wait patiently on the Lord? Do I pray with real intent, thereby ordering my life according to the answers I receive? Do I go forward and act on the answers I am given? Now, before we answer these questions, let's talk about the principle of prayer. Prayer is simply the process by which we are able to communicate with our Heavenly Father, and it is a two-way communication. Elder Scott teaches us that prayer is a supernal gift of our Father in Heaven to every soul. No matter who we are, where we are, what our needs are, or what we have done, we are not alone. We have a loving Father in Heaven who has made Himself available to us if we will just turn to Him. Now, Prayer does many things. Prayer is one of the ways that we can express gratitude. It brings comfort and peace. It is through prayer that we are able to receive a testimony. It helps us to sort out our feelings and thinking as we express our concerns and desires to our Heavenly Father. It can give us specific answers. Our minds can be enlightened because revelation comes through personal prayer. Prayer is where repentance begins, and it is through prayer that we can know we have been forgiven. And prayer can help us to forgive ourselves and others. Prayer can help us to find direction. It can help us in making decisions. It is where repentance begins and where we find an end as we go to our Father in Heaven. Prayer can help us in every way of our lives. It can help guide us in making the decisions that we have to make. We can receive help in very specific ways. It is through prayer that we can find strength both in spirit and in body. Prayer can provide protection from all sources of harm and evil. We can access every spiritual gift as we ask in sincere prayer and we find answers to all of life's questions as we ask in prayer. I know that there are healing powers in prayer—healing in terms of physical needs and healing of the Spirit. Now, prayer involves the individual, you and me, 
and it also involves the whole Godhead. All three members of the Godhead are involved in this way. When we pray to our Heavenly Father in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Advocate, answers come from our Heavenly Father by the Holy Ghost. It is through the Holy Ghost that we feel the love of the Father and the Son. I want you to know that I know that these principles concerning prayer are true. We find these principles taught in the scriptures and in the words of the prophets. I have a personal testimony of the power of prayer because I have experienced many of the blessings of prayer in my own life. But what I want to really talk about tonight is how you feel about prayer in your life, how you are using it to access the powers of heaven. In order to do this, let's go back to those original questions. The first question is, what do I need to pray about in my own life? Think about where you are in your life right now. Do you worry about things? Do you ever feel overwhelmed or confused? I am sure there are challenges and concerns. What are they? In the Book of Mormon, Alma teaches about some of the things we should pray about. As we read this scripture together, keep track of the specific things that are mentioned. We're going to read from Alma 34, verses 17 through 26. Therefore, may God grant unto you, my brethren, that ye may begin to exercise your faith unto repentance, that ye begin to call upon his holy name, that he would have mercy upon you. Yea, cry unto him for mercy, for he is mighty to save. Yea, humble yourselves and continue in prayer unto him. Cry unto him when ye are in your fields, yea, over all your flocks. Cry unto him in your houses. Yea, over all your household, both morning, midday, and evening. Yea, cry unto him against the power of your enemies. Yea, cry unto him against the devil, who is an enemy to all righteousness. Cry unto him over the crops of your fields, that ye may prosper in them. Cry over the flocks of your fields, that they may increase. But this is not all. Ye must pour out your souls in your closets, and in your secret places, and in your wilderness. Does this suggest some things that we could pray about? To me, it seems to suggest that we need to pray about everything. Alma prayed for mercy, that he might be saved. He was asking for the atonement to take effect in his life. He was repenting. He prayed for his family, for his possessions, for his success. He prayed for protection from Satan and temptation. I think that when he was told to pray in his closet and secret places and in his wilderness, the Lord wasn't talking about places he could pray, or at least he wasn't only talking about places. I think he was telling Alma to go to the secret places in his heart and in his life and pray for all of his personal struggles and weaknesses. Now, if we liken this scripture to our own lives, we can see many things we could pray about. For you, this could include such things as your schoolwork, finding a profession, meeting and finding a worthy and perhaps an eternal companion. What about beginning your families and your homes, your health, your own personal worthiness? 
Could it include your personal testimony, your desire to know how you should serve Him, your need to repent, your need to be strengthened against temptation? Does it suggest praying for the Holy Ghost to guide you in all things? When we pray, we must be mindful not to just pray for the things we want. We must come to the place where we pray for the things that the Lord wants for us. When we do this, we are in essence giving our lives over to Him. We are saying, I cannot do this by myself. I do not want to do this by myself. I will do it your way. Now this leads us to the second question. When and how can I pray? We do, of course, have regular prayers that we have all been taught to say. Personal prayers in the night and in the morning. We have family prayers and prayers that accompany our gatherings. These are the first prayers that we are taught to say. If we are not careful, they can become routine and even rote. How many times do we offer a quick morning prayer and then jump up and race out the door, never giving it another thought? How many times do we fall asleep saying our evening prayers or even skip them altogether because we are just so tired? When we consider to whom we are speaking when we pray, how much He has done for us, and how dependent we are upon Him, it gives us pause to think. Taking time to ponder as we pray will give the Spirit opportunity to speak to us. Now, family prayers can be powerful. They can unite family members and strengthen them in times of challenge. Family prayers can protect. They can bring comfort and peace. When our children were in the mission field, we would figure out the time difference from our home to the mission and then figure out what time, their time, we would be saying our family prayers so that they would know just when we were praying for them. Several of them have said that they felt those prayers and were strengthened by them in specific ways at the very moment that it was needed. But we are taught in the scriptures that these formal prayers are not the only way that we can approach our Heavenly Father. Again, referring to Alma 34, verse 27, we read, Yea, and when you do not cry unto the Lord, let your hearts be full, drawn out in prayer unto Him continually for your welfare. We can always have a prayer in our hearts. But what does this mean? I think that it's an attitude of upward reaching from our souls to heaven to a Heavenly Father. It is a fleeting but intense feeling of, Thank you. Please help me. What is the right thing for me to do? What should I say? I am so sorry. It is the yearning for comfort, strength, and guidance when you are in the midst of a situation. It is the feeling of gladness and joy at something beautiful. It is the recognition of the Holy Ghost operating in your life. It is the opening our hearts to continual communication. This kind of prayer can be more or less constant as we allow it to be. We control it by our activities, our environment, the condition of our hearts. Now, what are some of the things that can stop this from happening? 
loud and constant music, even good music, can just become noise that strangles a prayerful thought before it is ever formed in our minds. Surrounding ourselves with chaos, clutter, and confusion can stifle the spirit. Becoming too busy and stressed by everyday life can distract our minds from heaven. Allowing ourselves to be in places where we know the spirit cannot abide will block our prayers. Allowing inappropriate and ugly images to enter our minds through the things that we see on the internet, in movies, on television, or in the things that we read will destroy our connection with heaven. Being angry, irritated, annoyed by others can close our hearts. But you might say, these things are part of our lives every day. How can we avoid them? I believe that these things can be part of our everyday life if we let them. We are in control. At least we can be in control. It is so important that we each consider our lives and consider what we must do in order to qualify for the blessings of heaven. We will become aware of how close heaven is if we just reach for it. And the very act of reaching for it can help us put our lives in balance with the things of the Spirit. The closer we are to the Spirit, the more our hearts can be open and flowing to our Father in heaven. For me, the prayer of the heart keeps me closer to the Lord than anything I can do. And I can do it any place and any time. It is a lifeline to me. Our next question is, when I pray, do I pray with intensity and faith? Turn back to Alma 34. This whole passage of scripture indicates that we need to have both intensity and faith. Notice the words, exercise your faith. Call upon his name. Cry unto him. Pour out your souls, drawn out in prayer. This is more than just a dutiful prayer offered in a hurry. All prayers need to come from deep inside our minds and hearts. How offensive it must be to the Lord who has offered us so much, who stands ready to give every blessing expedient for our good. For us to hurry through our prayers, or sleep through them, or have our minds wander, or our words be casual and disrespectful, using words such as you and your instead of thee and thou. How often do we forget him altogether until we have an urgent need? Now, sometimes our prayers are an urgent plea for help. I remember one such prayer I offered when my then three-year-old son was missing. He had been playing with the other children in our yard, and I had taken my eyes off of him only momentarily to check on the baby. But suddenly he was gone. Immediately I offered a desperate prayer for help, and the thought came into my mind that he was at the swimming pool of an apartment complex that was about three blocks away. Now, he had never been to that pool. He had never even been to the apartments. 
The pool was enclosed in a building and was kept locked at all times. He didn't even know that it was there. But the feeling was strong. Running, I called my 10-year-old son, who was on his bike, to go to the swimming pool as quickly as he could. When he got there, he found his little brother and another little boy of the same age who had known about the pool, just beginning to wade into the shallow end of the water. They had on all their clothes and shoes, and even though the door had been open, there was no one else in the area. Now, some prayers are intense, and, and we need answers right now. Thankfully, not all prayers are like that. If we go before the Lord in prayer on a consistent basis, He will be there when we urgently need Him. Praying with intensity seems to indicate faith that the prayer can be answered. Faith is simple and childlike for some of us. It may be born out of love or out of never having had it tried. For most of us, faith is something we have to consistently work to have. We might attain great faith through a singular experience. But the next time our faith is tried, we seem to have to start all over again in really trusting the Lord. But I promise you that if you pray believing that Heavenly Father is there, that He loves you, and that He can answer all prayers, your faith will grow, and it will become stronger, and you will be able to come to the place in your life where you will know that these things are true. Believing is the beginning of faith. Next question. Do I really believe that my prayers are heard and that Heavenly Father will answer me? Let me tell you about one little boy's prayer. His name is Braden. He was very young at the time, five or six years old, and he had been reading the Book of Mormon with his family. The family would read a few verses each day and then have family prayer. One day they read the verses in Moroni 10 and 4. And when ye shall receive these things, I would exhort you that ye would ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if these things are not true. And if ye shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. Well, it was Braden's turn to pray that day. He began his prayer in the same usual way, using the same usual words. But then he said something different. He said, Heavenly Father, is the Book of Mormon true? Then he paused. He paused for so long that his father glanced over at him to see if he needed help in finishing his prayer. But he didn't need any help. He finished by saying simply, Thanks, Heavenly Father. And he closed his prayer. The Spirit entered that home and bore witness to the whole family of the truthfulness of the scriptures. His prayer was one of simple, beautiful faith. Now you are a child of God, just as is Braden. You are of great worth to him. He has commanded us repeatedly in the scriptures to pray always. He's provided the atonement to bring us back home. Why would he not? answer your prayers. He will. I promise he will. 
But maybe it's not the Lord that we question. Maybe it's our own worthiness we question. Maybe it's our lack of understanding how God answers our prayers that makes us question. In order to better understand and answer how Heavenly Father can answer our prayers, let us join this question with the next three questions, which are, Do I understand how the answer to prayers come? Do I recognize and accept answers, even if they are not what I want them to be? Do I understand what it means to wait patiently on the Lord? When we qualify ourselves through personal worthiness, Heavenly Father always answers our prayers. Now, please note the word qualify. We have to be trying hard to be worthy of the Lord's blessings. President Harold B. Lee said, If you want the blessing, don't just kneel down and pray about it. Prepare yourself in every conceivable way you can in order to make yourselves worthy to receive the blessing you seek. We have to be close to the Spirit to know what to pray for and to be able to discern His answers. But this does not mean that we have to be perfect or anywhere near it in order to pray and to get answers. And this is because prayer is one of the ways that we are able to repent and one of the ways that we are able to become perfected. Heavenly Father not only answers our prayers, but He always answers them in a way that will bless us eternally. This is a principle that is absolutely true. But there are many ways that prayers may be answered. He may say yes. He may say no. He may say not now. Sometimes we may feel that He's not answering us at all because we are not able to discern the answer. We have to trust in the Lord and trust His timing. We need to learn to recognize the answers when they come. Some answers come bit by bit in order to strengthen our faith. Elder Oaks said, We cannot force spiritual things. It must be so. Our life's purpose to obtain experience and to develop faith would be frustrated if our Heavenly Father enlightened us immediately on every question or directed us in every act. Some answers have already been given us, and the Lord is trusting us to act on them. Sometimes we are asking between two equally good things, and the Lord is giving us a chance to use our God-given power of agency. Perhaps in our urgent desire to receive a specific answer to a prayer, we are unwilling to put our lives in the hands of the Lord and accept the answer we are given. We want what we want, and we want it now, right? Maybe our problem lies in not recognizing how answers come. We are aware that some prayers are answered in spectacular ways, such as Joseph Smith's first vision. But most often, answers come in more quiet ways. In the Doctrine and Covenants 8, 2, and 3, we read, Yea, behold, I will tell you in your mind and in your heart by the Holy Ghost, which shall come upon you and which shall dwell in your heart. And behold, this is the spirit of revelation. Now, the first way mentioned here is in our mind. 
These answers come through the still, small voice of the Holy Ghost as thoughts, ideas, knowledge. These may be flashes of inspiration that we recognize immediately, or they may be ideas that we have to work through and that develop over time. They are usually accompanied by a good feeling. The second way mentioned is in our heart. This has to do more with our feelings. We may have negative, confused feelings to warn us that the answer is no, or the feelings may be sweet, peaceful, reassuring, and comforting. And the answer then is yes, and these feelings let you know. These feelings are sometimes likened to a burning sensation that's intense, or the feeling may be very subtle. The key principles here are that we have been commanded to pray to our Heavenly Father. He hears every prayer. He will answer our prayers for our best good. When we know this deep in our hearts, we won't get discouraged and turn away from Him. When the answers are not recognizable immediately, we will remain faithful and constant, continually praying to discover His ways. The Spirit can help us, and we will learn to discern how the answers come and what the answers are. It can be different for every person, and it can even be different in each experience that we have. I know that as we qualify ourselves to have the Holy Ghost with us constantly, we will be able to more clearly see and understand the answers to our prayers. The last question is, do I order my life according to the answers to the prayers that I receive? Do I go forward and act? I know that the Lord hears and answers prayers. But I also believe that if we continually pray and then refuse to listen and follow, He will not be as accessible to us in the future. In the Doctrine and Covenants, section 101, 7 and 8, we read, They were slow to hearken unto the voice of the Lord their God. Therefore the Lord their God is slow to hearken unto their prayers, to answer them in the day of their trouble. In the day of their peace they esteemed lightly my counsel, but in the day of their trouble, of necessity, they feel after me. When we receive answers from the Lord, we have to move forward in trust and confidence. I don't think it makes Him happy when we continually seek for another answer when we have already received one. We need to remember what He has given us and act upon it in faith. Now, if you will forgive me, I want to ask one more question. Do you ever feel like you do not want to pray? In 2 Nephi 32 and 8, we read, For if ye would hearken unto the Spirit which teacheth a man to pray, ye would know that ye must pray. For the evil spirit teacheth not a man to pray, but teacheth him that he must not pray. Brigham Young taught us, it matters not whether you or I feel like praying. When the time comes to pray, pray. If we do not feel like it, we should pray till we do. My dear young brothers and sisters, you are at a beginning place in your lives. It's a new school year, 
a time for new experiences, new relationships, maybe eternal relationships. You are starting your lives in many ways. You have many important decisions ahead of you. Concerning these decisions, Heavenly Father expects a lot from us. He expects us to do all we can to think, to work, to stretch our capacity. But if we are willing to do it His way, placing our lives in His hands, it will be so much easier, and we will get it right. In the Bible dictionary, we learn the object of prayer is not to change the will of God, but to secure for ourselves and for others blessings that God is already willing to grant, but that are made conditional on our asking for them. All we have to do is humbly turn to Him and ask, and then listen and obey. Put simply, life just doesn't have to be as hard as we sometimes make it. In 3 Nephi 18, 18-20, we read, Behold, verily, verily, I say unto you, Ye must watch and pray always, lest ye enter into temptation. For Satan desireth to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Therefore ye must always pray unto the Father in my name. And whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, which is right, believing that ye shall receive, behold, it shall be given unto you. Let us follow the example of Nephi. Let us turn to our Father in heaven in humble prayer. Let us receive the blessings untold that he has reserved for us and for our families. I know that God lives. Jesus Christ lives. They know each of us. They love each of us. They wait for us. May we be quick to respond by turning to them in humble prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Navigating Life Through Prayer with thoughts from Chris Crow and Cheryl C. Lant. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.